What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! This is it, Noah. This episode of Be Real tonight, this is our last chance to make people remember us as more than losers. You're going to go play lacrosse at Stanford in the fall. I'm going to uh, ITT Tech, probably. Um, this episode is everything. Yeah, you've got a, uh, a job waiting for you at Google of as course. a podcaster. Uh-huh. I, if only. Uh, welcome, one and all, to your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast, Be Real, on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard, and tonight, as Chance mentioned, we're going back to high school, to those final moments before one goes into the world and becomes an adult, Yeah, and says goodbye to childhood. So this episode, I think I said something like, it's when high school seniors shoot their shot Mm -hmm. uh, on text message to you earlier this week. That's right. So we're talking about the new movie, Booksmart, which is out Memorial Day weekend. Uh... Olivia Wilde directed that. Um, it has a sibling movie, uh, metaphorically and literally, in uh, 2007, Super Bad. Uh, and then we're going to go back to 98 to catch Can't Hardly Wait. That's so, great. So uh, This is such a Noah Ballard genre. Well, yeah, we have uh, anointed ourselves kind of like teen movie experts over the years. But uh, what yeah. else have we done? we done? No need to thank me, dear listener, for not... Uh, <laughs> Going along with Chance doing, uh, what if we did the most stirring documentaries about the Vietnam War? Right. That's that's misrepresenting it. But I would still do that category. Um, What's Baz Luhrmann up to? <laughs> do you think we should see all the Dog's Purpose movies? These are text messages that I receive. None of that is true. Um, but anyway, uh, we're going to talk about uh, Booksmart to open things up. Or maybe actually, why don't we define this category a little more? It's all sort of like characters and there's like a sort of a, allegedly a central friendship to to each of these movies um of people grappling with like their almost understanding of the end of a personal epoch and like intensely kind of planning forward but also you know coming to terms with the fact that they have no idea what is on the other side of this like ledge in their lives they need to find that like closure or like that thing that they're supposed to have accomplished by the time they're an 18-year-old graduate. So for some of these people, it's, you know, to get laid. For some of them, it's to like break loose a bit. For some, it's just to confess finally like feelings that have been unexpressed for a certain amount of time. Um, and that could be between the central figures, you know, or it could be, you know, some ridiculous supporting character who... Mm comes and goes uh, like a mannequin uh, placed around a store uh, based on seasonal displays. <laughs> and we, we should say that we, we kicked around and it was a good kind of um, 
addition and then omission by you, uh, dazed and confused, um, which yeah. maybe more and than fast times, right? Which maybe more than any of these movies, like basks in that sort of like personal gloaming at the end of a school year. Except most of the central characters in that movie are not graduating that night, so we we took it out. Yeah, and you have to talk about too the idea that um, dazed and confused his a movie sort of without the privilege of maybe all three of these movies where everyone's sort of either like Ivy league or name brand university bound. Yeah, it's true. And even the people who aren't doing that are unsure. It's like sexy. It's not like, I'm just going to stay in Austin and like keep hitting on high school girls. Right. Right. Except if you're uh, trip McNeely trip, trip McNeely. <laughs> okay. So we're going to talk about book smart first, right? Um, absolutely as i mentioned at the top this is uh the directorial debut from the actor olivia wilde um and boy does a publicist really love that yeah (laughs) um it is four credited screenwriters but after doing a little reading um the one who really kind of shaped it and punched it up is katie silverman who wrote one of noah's favorite movies of last year set it up set it up was great i loved set it up and I think that it's interesting. She wrote Isn't It Romantic too, which I think... I didn't love that as much, I knew, but I did see it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think she has a very keen sense of like how to give movies like this some pace and some structure and then like a lot of references, as you said. Um, Definitely. Caitlin Dever and uh, Beanie Feldstein play Amy and Molly, respectively, who are um, two type A extremely 2019 extremely politically correct uh young women about to graduate high school um in they live in la and then they realize and i felt like this was such a like good bit like a good way into the movie um they've put their academics first they've never partied they've never done anything wrong uh, and then they realize that all the kids that they've looked down upon, that the that this genre of movie would look down upon, are also either going to the same schools, Yale, or going to Stanford on soccer scholarships, or as we joked at the top, getting jobs at Google. And they have this moment, um, which you'll probably hear in the trailer right now, of like, wait, so they got to have it all. Um, they're going to the same place that we worked so hard to get. So that's sort of like the learning that they'll do right off the top. And then essentially they make the decision to to party very hard for the first time the night before graduation. It's the last day. We got you through high school. I need to go at the end of the year budget numbers. Can't we just graduate, head off to college? That should do it, right? We will persist. I can't hear you. I can't soundproof glass. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Nobody knows that we are fun. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. I'm incredible at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on the SATs. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. He broke art rules. Rosa Parks. Name another one. Susan B. Anthony. It's interesting too, and I have to, I mean, you you can't possibly get away from this genre without talking about the recent college admissions scandal, because this movie, which of course was shot and written far before that happened, like there's almost a commentary on that of like, children of privilege are going to go to good schools no matter what. Hmm. It doesn't matter if you were a goody two-shoes, like we're all going. And that's sort of 
false narrative of like we didn't just care about school you know we cared about school and other things Mm. is rings a little false in that one bathroom scene because i think that i mean we all went to high school like that was sort of a weird moment it's like you know some people tried harder than others but like people didn't all get into ivy league schools because they wanted to yeah that's a little that was a little weird um it's like where's the where's the kid who like did perfectly fine and is still going to go to uc Irvine or something but then there's an interesting sort of almost accidental exploration in this movie of like lavish wealth yes that then speaks to like why these people maybe are going to wherever they want and like no one has to worry about anything which maybe makes the movie even more resonant but only accidentally sure sure (laughs) um I will say you're right that bathroom scene is a little is a little weird but it also one of the things at the top I want to say that I like about this movie you and I had had this conversation about you know in a post breakfast club world we're suspicious of the fact that like teens are actually that judgmental and regimented about like the way that they interact with each other yes certainly there are cliques yes certainly there are types of people um but like it's not like well there's the virgins and the not virgins in our school <laughs> Um, right. And so I did sort of like that opening up of like, yeah, maybe you didn't see that side of that person. They might still have put the time in while you were self-obsessing over something else. I kind of like the way that it began to tear down certain tropes of the genre. Absolutely. And I think that um, there's a good, whoever we're going to give the credit to for it in the four screenwriters, there's a good ear here for the way at least people our age think teenagers possibly behave, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, with their like rallying for things they can't possibly even vote for. Right. And, you know, sort of being socially active in a way that like, maybe we pray that they are. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and I almost think that much in the way I didn't think, um, isn't it romantic really carried through th- its main conceit. I found that also this movie pretty quickly gives up on that Gen Z kind of we are the world, we are the children sort of thing. And then it shifts into it doesn't know how to get from like where it's going without going into super bad. Sure. Um, That middle gear. It doesn't know how to get from first to third gear without hitting the second gear of like dick and wiener and vagina jokes. Hmm. Um. So let's talk before I want to unpack that a little more, but let's just like, please let's just like get into, into the movie a little bit. Um, what do we think about like the central chemistry between Molly and Amy? I think it's good. I think it's good that they're not such polar opposites. Yeah. The way that we'll talk about later, uh, in super bad and in some of the character dynamics and can't hardly wait. Um, but this they're similar and the only real sort of, separation that they have is uh amy's sexuality Mm -hmm. she's a lesbian and she's been out for two years but she really hasn't acted on any of her desires and she has focused on this one skater girl but i think where the movie sort of has these characters diverge is the fact that amy's looking for love and molly's looking for achievement achievement but then when she realizes that how she's been valuing her achievement to date is fundamentally flawed 
the movie then kind of shifts into her having a not as interesting love story mm-hmm. with another character that right. we sort of incidentally that's my so we can talk about tropes of this genre but i think one of the more annoying ones of all three of these movies is just like well they're gonna like hook up right they gotta hook up what else do they gotta what else hook do kids up do? If, that's what kids do on the last night of ch- like childhood they're gonna hook up right <laughs> and if they don't it will have all been for nothing my teen romantic comedy thing would be everyone involved uh going by current news trends uh just not hooking up at all sure and going home unsatisfied and sad and, and going to a Instagram state school i do really want to like commend the structure of this movie though because it does something that kind of and we'll get into this more was super bad the it's very well structured as a night out movie because they end up going to three different parties from people who you could argue maybe were like rather hastily introduced in this sort of like hundred minute movie but like you you get everybody in a school scene and then on their way to the big party hosted by the the lovable uh like class clown and vice president the chris klein of this movie if you will Um, oh man they end up at at two other parties and i really felt like well carried along by this movie as opposed to that more apatowian just like get out there in the street and run around until a car explodes (laughs) um i did right there's no like acts of violence that like come out of nowhere i think silverman's Uh, got a great handle there on how to put a movie together i also i think it's really funny i don't know how you. it is very funny um I, I lulled. Yeah. What should we should we throw out some lines? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> Let me uh, pull up my whole thing. Don't In worry. the same way that Jonah Hill reveals to Michael Sarah that he um, had a dick drawing obsession as a child, um, these these young women also like get into masturbation, much to Amy's chagrin. And I love the way that uh, Beanie, uh, Beanie Felstein's Molly is like. Uh, so can I confess to you that I once tried to masturbate with an electric toothbrush? It gave me a horrible UTI. Horrible. <laughs> was pretty. Was really going for it in the gross-out style. What I like about this movie is that it has big swings. Mm-hmm. And I was when I was watching this movie, I was thinking in my mind that oh, when we're here talking about this on the podcast, Chance is going to be like, "Well, it had such big swings. You got to give it that." There's like the claymation part. And I'd be like, okay, Chance. Um, that is stolen from uh, 21 Jump Street. Yeah, I don't know if I love the claymation part. It confused The claymation me. part is not a good part. The best parts, just like in most of these movies, and as it should be really, are not like weird um, medium jumping <laughs> swings. It's that the kids are really hilarious. And then, yeah, like, no, it really comes down to the dialogue. And subversive things have been done to these character types of the people on the margins of this movie. Um, Billy Lord, especially, um, plays this sort of like extravagant, like drunk genius who keeps popping up at like every. Like it would be inappropriate to call her the Virgil of like these people's night night out, but like she is always there, like either lending sage advice or like falling into a pool. Um, I think that uh, young Skylar Gazondo playing Jared, yeah, 
by the end of it, like it's the most climactic thing that happens is his confession that like what he wants to do with his wealth and privilege is to like start a regional airline and then take that money and create new Broadway shows Original because show. he thinks because he thinks the remakes of Broadway shows, the revivals of them, is not doing justice to a musical going audience. That's hilarious. And that's hilarious. Oh, yeah. and the two um the two theater kids, like though they are hysterical. Um Yes. Like after the- And that they're having a, a murder mystery party is really good and clever. Right. And uh, this movie doesn't suffer from Really, I don't think any gay panic, which is great. No, the 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 ease with which this movie—I mean, listeners, you can yell at me if if I'm wrong—but like, I don't think we've ever seen a movie that that had a main gay character where like the coming out or their being gay didn't like hinge into the plot in some way. You know, like Love Simon, you could it, groundbreaking, but hinges entirely on that. And the ease with right, which right, right. this movie falls into the tradition of a Mean Girls, of a Breakfast Club, of all these American smart high school movies that might appeal to teens but might also appeal to 30-year-olds. This movie, like, it's I, it has no problems with it. It doesn't have to pump its brakes to get it out there. It's great. And in the, in the situations where her sexuality does come into play, Amy, um, is in this relationship with her mother and father, Lisa Kudra and Will Forte, yeah. um, who are not jennifer garner and josh dumel at all no uh and in fact they are so accommodating and so accepting as to be uncomfortably so which feels more genuine of a parents in 2019 at least in which the, uh, in the circles in which i find myself sure let me see if i can get my will forte out there because they've made all these like hors d'oeuvres to celebrate their like their night with just the three of them before they go to school and they all have these terrible puns and will forte's like well you can't leave until you see the Salah me being so proud to be your dad on the biggest night of your life. <laughs> like, they're just the worst pun dad jokes, but, like, right. or he's like, leaning yeah, in the, so the, far. The bowl of all of you so much, <laughs> I can't... I don't know what I'm going to do with myself when you leave. These are olives. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. Terrific. But, yeah, there's some good bits in this. Yes. There's some good scenes. I think there are some bad scenes. Um I think that the Jason Sudeikis part, like, doesn't work. Okay. I kind of like that I, part. I was more confused by the Jessica Williams. I think that was going to be my second example. Okay. So- I don't think the Jessica Williams thing works, especially... This movie accidentally succeeds because of the college entrance scandal. This movie does not succeed. There's been, like, 20 years of, like, teachers preying on students right. being, like, not cool in the media that you, like, didn't have to go for that, especially if you weren't going to, like, pay it off at all. Okay, so my my big theory of this movie is that it opens... With this scene of Beanie Feldstein like dancing down to meet her friend in this very like heightened, um, like this is a fun high school movie with a hip soundtrack with Run the Jewels and Lizzo and Missy Elliott. Um, the soundtrack is incredible, and my theater was bumping. Nice. <laughs> that premiere room, it was bumping in there. I was in the Dolby yeah. premiere room. Well, yeah, you know Dolby that, shows those up. Those Dolby speakers were just like boom. It was great. Um. 
But then the music goes out and you see how kind of goofy it is that th- what it looks like when they're dancing when the when the movie soundtrack is not playing. And I think that that was sort of a thesis statement for like how this movie's going to go. We are going to be a really bright poppy high school movie, but sometimes we're going to turn the music off and show you how it show you how it really is. Um, and for the, a lot of times I think it's admirably succeeds at that. Um, it finds some really interesting moments like when Jessica Williams their favorite English or Spanish teacher or whatever comes to pick them up and like there's that sort of like slow moment of like you see the coolest teacher outside of school and it's just like and she's just driving a Corolla like everybody else well yeah but also like sort of mouth watering and the way she gets out of the car and is like y'all need a ride um but then yeah when it when it pitches much higher into like super bad territory where it's like and now she's going to hook up with a student it's like why what you know and then there's this like awkward you know and oh he's actually 20 like joke at the end if you gotta force that in don't do it right if you have to explain it's like that scene in you ever watch do you watch Shit's creek chance i don't I hear good things. The sign on the way into town has like a man standing behind a woman who's bent over like getting something out of the river, but it looks like they're having sex. Uh And so the when they're moving in, they explain this to the people that live there and they go, Oh, does it well they're brother and sister? So they hang up a sign next to the thing that says it's okay, they're brother and sister, which doesn't make it any better. (laughs) It's funny. Which is basically how I feel about the joke, uh, in this movie it's like that he's 20 and he's got a job at google but he like didn't really graduate on time like doesn't make it better right i want to shout out one more great line of dialogue that speaks speaks to the um again the ease this movie has with sexual politics when amy is trying to figure out if ryan is is gay it's like well this is a character who um, has been out and lives in a world that seems perfectly fine with her being out, but you still have that teenage thing so wonderfully transposed into a different spectrum where she's like, well, I'm going to study in Botswana, and the other girl's like, well, you mean Uganda? And she's like, no, I couldn't go to Uganda because they would like kill me because I'm gay. And then there's like this big pause, and she's like, would would you be afraid to go to Uganda? (laughs) Right. That's such an interesting way to test the waters in like a 2019 woke teenager sort of way. Well, I think another sort of really interesting thing and a really authentic feeling moment is if we can spoil it, there's a climactic like shouting match pretty much in all these movies. Of course. Um, And during that, not only there's the character level of, oh, we've emotionally grown attached to these girls and they're fighting like on what should be a celebratory evening. You see in the background, people start to pull out their phones and record it. Yeah. And it ends up being like five or six little like iPhone flashlights you can see. And you're like, oh my God, these kids are like actually under a microscope. You know, if they, if someone does something nuts here, you know, it all goes to hell. Thank God that like something else more nuts happens later that goes viral. Right. But like, it's so interesting to me that like that is the pressure that you add to these characters in 2019. It's not just the foreground politics. It's also the background influence of like capture media, social media craziness. That's a really good observation. And I think you could probably make an argument that it contributes to the, you know, how tightly the collars are buttoned initially on these characters um, to to pitch a perfect game in their young lives. Well, should we tell people how we rate movies and then rate Booksmart? Absolutely. Two words. 
good and bad mm-hmm. two gradients if the movie's well made if the movie's watchable if it is or isn't it's good and bad it's uh it's simple as that yeah good good is like what boys in the hood boys in the hood titanic bad good is like uh perfect storm Ugh. <laughs> uh, to me gone in 60 seconds Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> What is, an, what is a movie I, I think is bad good? Tombstone. Yes. Yeah. True. Um, good bad is uh, In the Name of the Father. Schindler's Anything list. with Daniel Day-Lewis in it. Well, that might be a stretch. And then bad bad is like uh, a bad movie. Wyatt Earp. I agree with that. <laughs> um, okay. So Booksmart. I'll go first. I think there are very curious things about this movie and like some of the <laughs> some of the swings are like what what was that um but i think that they they fade okay into a movie that is like getting after it this hard like i said i really appreciate the structure i think the dialogue is great i think it's very wise it's very wise also in certain ways like about this specific subgenre we're doing today like where you go to the party and instead of the jocks being like who are these fucking nerds? They're like, you never party with us. And I'll be honest, you kind of freak me out, but like, let me get you a beer. And you find out that maybe Amy can sing a little bit and nobody ever knew that. Like, those are the things that come to the fore, I would I would think, like, yes. at the end when of the high school experience. this movie is like a more feel-good eighth grade, it's yes. so much better than when it tries to be like a feminist super bad. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm going to give it a good, good. I also think it is intensely watchable. I would have, I would have yelled to the projectionist to like show it again last night, <laughs> like right now. Yeah. It's it's super fun. I saw it too, and yeah, everybody had a great time. People were laughing. Um, I'm willing to like give this one a pass. You know, it's a debut film. It comes with those flaws, but it like we have to commend the big swings, and they're like they're not like technically improficient swings. No they're fine they're just bizarre uh so in that way i think yeah good good and some of the sets are like really cool and and weird yeah the the party and like the that weird dance sequence is shot well totally oh, that's unnecessary so cool. um that's so much better than the doll thing yeah why do they just do the dance sequence if they were going to do like a weird sequence this movie has too many like cute sequences maybe like and one the, too many the 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 pool scene goes on a bit too long with her going under. Yeah, a bit. It's like, ooh, we have a whole day with a whatever an underwater camera thing. We better do seven long shots of this. Right. Um, I think this is interesting too. Just as we kind of exit this movie, um, we'll see how it does at the box office. But yeah, there are a lot of ways in which like this is so much better than the Netflix teen movie par for the course right now. Um. And it, it is better than that. And it, it doesn't have that like Netflix ick. Yeah. Um, where it's like nobody like did the color correction or like the color correction is terrible. And it was just like, yeah, right. we just like rented um, like a software developer's office in Seattle and like tried to make it look like a house. You guys like that? <laughs> like, no, I don't. I don't like that house. Um, but it is funny. Like things like that underwater sequence going on way too long. Is this movie being like, we are a theatrical film. <laughs> it's like, okay, but you didn't have to do that. Look at all that blue. Yeah. Look at the lights. <laughs> it is good. It's beautifully shot. The music. I can't say more that how much I love the music. It's really good. Um, yeah. Go, 
also we should just say I don't know if we say this very often just like go see this movie if you want to, if you want movies like this to like survive you want Annapurna to survive go see this shit oh yeah and if you want us to survive listen to this ad we'll be right back This podcast is brought to you by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means that you can write and paint, write and design, and write and make a film. You can also write and write. Look for their MFA faculty member Tom Barbash's novel, The Dakota Winters, out from Echo, and their alum, Adam Nemet, and podcast favorites, We Can Save Us All, out now from Unnamed Press. For more information, open an internet browser and type in www.cca.edu slash writing MFA. Are we going to talk about our high school selves at all on this show? Is that, is that playing? You can do that. Who? Chance. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Noah, I'd like to speak from the heart for a little bit here. Uh, I love the direct address. Right. Noah! I'm going Chance. off. I'm going off book. <laughs> when I was a young man, we only had Facebook. <laughs> Chance, what were you like in high school? Well, which character? Which character do you relate to the most? Were you a? I don't see you as a Jonah Hill. No. If anything, you were. You were always my Michael Sarah yeah, in college. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Were you still? Were you someone else's Michael Sarah in high school? Um, sort of. I really related to that, like, uh, I guess we'll get into the movie here, but I related to that, like, really wanting to, um, you know, like, expand your social horizons, like, read, hang out with women, but, like, but spending all of your mental energy, like, just in a circle of bullshit with your friends and having no idea how to, like, marry those two or how to get out of the latter was, like, very, um... Michael Sarah for me. What about you? Sure. Um Yeah, I mean I I don't know. I, I didn't really have this dynamic where it was just like me and another dude and then like a couple a couple of peripheral people. Like I had a big group in high school. Right. So like sometimes you were the Jonah Hill, sometimes you were the Michael Sarah. And like, you know, if my friend Alex Wiederspiel wasn't around, sometimes you were the McLovin. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I was a big theater guy, so it's probably one of the disciples of those. Oh, nice! The two theater leaders. Sure, I was. I would definitely have gone to that uh, the murder, murder mystery. mystery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. All right. Should we get into Superbad? I would love that. Two thousand seven. This movie was a giant hit. Uh, it continued. To- well, how old were you? Where Where were you when this movie came out? I was seventeen. I was in high school, and you want to know what? I never saw it. I saw this in the theater, I think, multiple times, and I was because I was a senior in high school. Yeah, yeah. It also it completely continues the crest of the Apatow wave. It's the same year as Knocked Up, um, Rogan and Goldberg writing, Apatow producing. Uh, yeah, well, it was it was like the first I think real winner for him as a producer, showing that like even the guys that he works with, it was like his collaboration puts these people over the top. In and then Seth Rogen was an island of his own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Matola is the director, who um, like some of those other kind of Apatow hands, he did Adventureland a couple years later, um, but has not had a great 
2010s. Um, which had they a- directed that terrible um, T- HBO movie with Larry David, Clear History. Oh, okay. Wow. But he's a TV guy. He comes from Undeclared, which was Apatow's show in the early 2000s. Right, so right. somebody he knew. Yeah. So it's a Rogan and Evan Goldberg script, which they began writing when they were in high school. They they Allegedly. You don't believe that? I really believe that. I mean, the ego that comes with, oh, we should write a movie about ourselves and use the same names right. when we're famous. Like, sure, that comes from high school. But that sort of implies that these guys' sensibilities has ever left high school. That's more what I mean. The best case scenario for authoring one of these movies is to be able to reflect genuinely on what that moment was like and hit some moments that are, you know, hit some that's so true moments for the adults and the kids. This movie has the, you know, kind of like antic craziness of like, we never grew up. And part of that is winning. And part of that, like 12 years later for someone who didn't see it, when it was a phenomenon, is kind of like, I don't know. This movie like has the opposite problem that you'd think it would have from the people it's coming from, or maybe not, but the idea that the high school kids sound so true and the adults are so weird. Yeah. And so out there and so like not playing in the same realist space not at all. that Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah are. And what emerges is sort of like this central movie and then this like weird slapstick like cop parody with McLovin, Bill Hader, and Seth Rogen. Right, right. Which I did really not remember as much as it like is really there. It is a lot of the movie. And this movie's so long too. It's almost two hours long. Right. And watching it, it's like, why are we back with these cops? And there's like that monologue <laughs> at the end where they were like, we were just trying to be cool and like give you an education about the world. And it's like, what? What was the point of all this? Oh my God. Um, yeah, it ha- you've said this about Apatow and Apatow-adjacent movies before. You could probably throw the L word at this one, too. It is a little bit lazy. Right. Oh, I think it's a long. Um, well, yeah, two L words apply. Um, right. There was no reason that uh, funny people had to be, what, four hours and change or whatever it ended up being. Right. It's, the, it's like the Ridley Scott cut of Kingdom of Heaven. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, when... Okay, so... Let's get the premise out for for the uninitiated. So uh, Michael Sarah is Evan, right? Michael Sarah is... Yes. And then we got Christopher Mintz-Plass, who, if I can digress for a second, do you know what I'm going to say? I think so. Say it. So Christopher Mintz-Plass plays Fogel, a.k.a. McLovin. Yeah. And while... uh, um, what was it? Uh, role models. Right. That movie that he did after this with uh, what's his name? Love role models. Goon. Uh, uh, Paul Sean Rudd Scott and, and Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott. He came to the University of Nebraska right. to premiere the movie. We like won some regional contest or something, and he came. And on behalf of the Daily Nebraska, the student newspaper of uh, the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, I like filled out whatever like bullshit press thing and suddenly found myself 
at the presser for this and then talking to him afterwards. And because the douchebag from the Lincoln Journal star went on too long, I didn't get to ask any questions. So McLovin felt bad and was like, get in the limousine with us. We're going downtown. That's right. And I was like, okay, McLovin, like, this is Lincoln. I don't know how much trouble you think we're going to get into. But then we like showed up at some of the bars in Lincoln and like people were going crazy. I bet. Because like this movie was like in 2008, 2009, like he was ubiquitous. Right. Like it was McLovin. Like everybody wanted a, a picture of McLovin. This is like pre-selfie. Oh, nobody was like, oh, people Christopher, just please to... come over here. <laughs> and he was so overwhelmed by the experience that he had to like go back to his, his limo and go back to the hotel because it was so like upsetting. I can't even imagine. Um, yeah i thought you were gonna tell i I wrote a devastating piece for the arts section i think the last sentence if i remember correctly was and his limousine drove off into the night wow next tell casey's afro man story (laughs) hey yo afro man (laughs) another day that will never come um so (laughs) yeah so there's like the three of them and fogel aka mclovin is definitely like He's definitely like the weird hanger on, you know, like if you got a small enough friend group, you're liable to get a Remora like Fogel. Right. Well, that's sort of one of the mysteries of the movie is like, what is Fogel doing here? Like he's sort of a doofus, but like they evidently seems to have some affection for him. And that's sort of the twist. If I can spoil it now, uh, yeah. 10, 15 years, 10, 12 years later, um, it's because they've gotten into the same college and they're rooming together, mm-hmm. which Seth Jonah Hill does not know at the outset. Well, actually, he does, doesn't he? That's right. He knew the whole time. He actually, he knew the whole time. Uh, but that is sort of the the secret that's going on. Uh, and that represents sort of the... There's this other secret, too, in, uh, in Booksmart, where she's going to uh, Botswana for not a semester, or not just the summer, for the entire year. Right. And that really devastates uh, her friendship. So that sort of is also a mirrored thing in these two films. Yeah, there's like a sex secret and a... And a sex, <laughs> um, like a masturbatory secret and then a secret about their actual plans for the following Right, year. yeah, interesting. God, yeah, these movies are so similar. Um, so this is basically one of the... It's one of the last weeks of the year. Like, we're done. He's parking in the teacher lot because he thinks he can get away with it. We're so deep into the year. Of course, he cannot. Of course. But... That's uh, Jonah Hill, of course, with his funny little beater. Um, They're close enough to graduation that this feels like one of the last nights that they have. And they suddenly hear that Emma Stone's having a party. And because Fogel has gotten a fake ID, Jonah Hill, Seth, offers that they'll buy not just some booze, but the booze for the party. Right. And so this movie unfolds as an odyssey of will they be able to get the booze to the party? Thanks for taking him, Seth. No, no problem. I can't imagine what you're going to do without each other next year. Evan told me you didn't get into Dartmouth. You going to miss each other? No, I don't miss each other. Yeah, I'm going to cry myself to sleep every night. Me too. When I'm out partying. Go to school, boys. Bye. Take care of those. I never see you at parties or anything. Saturday was actually a crazy night for me. Seth's parents were throwing this party, like a get-together, cocktail casual. Wow. And then we went to a nightclub. You got in. We got right in. That sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) You would have loved it. 
hit my brand new fake ID. Wait, you changed your name to McLovin? Doesn't even have a first name, it just says McLovin! This guy's either gonna think, here's another kid with a fake ID, or here's McLovin, the 25-year-old Hawaiian organ donor. I am McLovin. That's what I love about all three of these movies, I think, is at their core, it's about having this party or this social gathering where everyone's th- everyone's there. Everyone's welcomed with open arms because it's the final night. And that sort of leads to this X factor of anything can happen. Can I say, I think there is almost something good-bad about the relationship between Seth and Evan. Um, like, part of it I just found really irritating, but that might just be because it's true that unlike Amy and Molly, these two cannot fucking communicate. And but like but also like what would you expect from 17-year-old boys, especially like the less than socially adept ones? Seth as a character is so frustrating because like no matter what you say to him, he's like a sex and alienation automaton or something, right? It was hard to watch sometimes almost. You have to wonder with this movie how aware it is of the toxic masculinity. Because at some points, you it must be. But then at other points, it's sort of like question mark, like, what do they think about women? Right. You know? But I think that the... So one of the opening jokes in it sort of speaks to, I think, the greater thesis of this movie and about who these characters are and the read on masculinity. And they're sitting in the car and... Um, Evan's mother comes and just like says says goodbye to uh, Seth and Evan who have been picked up to go to like one of their last days of school. And the mother's like leaning over into the car and like clearly the camera is like on her cleavage. And not in like a, a inappropriate or perverted way. It's just it's just present. Mm-hmm. And she walks away and Seth says like just apropos nothing well apropos what he's just seen i'm truly jealous you got to suck on those tits when you were a baby and it's so like offensive and like of course like teen boy like gross out poke at them as hard as you can toxic humor but then like little michael sarah like looks back at him and goes well uh yeah but at least you got to (laughs) suck on your dad's dick and then it cuts to the next scene you know, and that's such a perfect way to like encapsulate, I think, this movie's relationship with male characters is like when you have to like put somebody in their place, like there are a certain set of things that you say. Yeah. You like poke at the homophobia or, you know, sort of have a moment of gay panic, you know, or it's about like, oh, if you like, like everyone's playing by that rule of like scoring with chicks, but like, you know in the moment that you're actually like supposed to be romantic. Right, right. But it's such a weird that they go from these like polar opposite though of like moral code. It's sort of, it's unnerving. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a good, I think that's a good overall assessment. And it's a little, it's a little strange in the movie making too when like granted people didn't know who Emma Stone was at the time. But now when you see Emma Stone in this movie as... Uh, Seth's home ec partner he does the like air humping thing behind oh, her oh yeah, yeah yeah before she even has a line and you're like you're gonna treat Emma Stone like this super bad when it go- when you go out there with the cops and you're like so much of this is cops and we also feel a lot of us feel differently about cops than we did 12 years ago too especially <laughs> ones who love to abuse their power um, right it's just like Wait, when I'm not laughing, when I'm thinking like that's this movie doesn't 
want me to do that because like right. no good can come of it as far as Superbad is concerned. But that being said, though, this movie is so fucking funny. This movie has some of the funniest like lines and just bits. I think the whole thing with the fake ID and the fact that he is a 25-year-old Hawaiian a, organ donor named McLovin is I was I I raffled, I lulled. I did whatever the teens do when they're like very moved by something humorous. Yeah. That's such a good bit. I think it's and the most iconic think, and best part of the movie joke wise. And an undersung thing that I think is funny too are the outfits, especially because <laughs> Seth has to change, Jonah Hill has to change into Evan's father's like 70s party attire because he gets, uh, what is he, he somehow soils himself. Right. There's like this weird 70s filmmaking thing and I don't know why, but there's something sort of charming about it. But I think those clothes sort of bring it in. It goes to the title and it goes to the soundtrack, which is a lot of like... They literally play the four tops. Are you man enough from Shaft in Africa? And then I love that like McLovin uh, Fogel comes out in his like work attire, and it's like this weird like big collared shirt and this brown vest. <laughs> and of course, there's like this really playful scene where Seth and Evan are fighting about whatever, and like Fogel comes into the mix or whatever, and Evan defends him, and then Seth goes off, and then. You know, uh, Fogel says something, and Michael, Sarah, Evan goes, "Take off that vest. You look like Aladdin." <laughs> so good. Christopher Mintzplatz, in general, is like, I don't know, I don't quite understand like why the character of McLovin down the stretch of this movie is so iconic, but he, as like a physical presence in this movie, is so funny because he was only seventeen when he was in it. And he's like, he is exactly like one of those 17 year olds that's like an optical illusion. You look at him, it's like, well, your head is like 12, but your whole body (laughs) height wise is like 20, but your arms are like 14. Like he is just all over the fucking place, gangliness and voice wise. That kid kid also like gets through. Yeah. And like always succeeds. Sure. And that's like going back to like Revenge of the Nerds or like Porky's or something. That sort of trope that like the like the weirdo who's just unapologetically himself will prevail, at least sexually. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So what do we want to rate this? Do we have anything else to talk about? I think this movie handles sex sort of well. Yeah. In that it you, I, I don't think it, it it handles the the sort of art of seduction well, but I think it handles that sort of best case, like sort of best practices maybe sure. well. Yeah. You know, there's a scene where, of course, the Evan and Becca are together at the end, and they're like both too intoxicated to possibly like have a meaningful exchange, and they don't. Like Evan puts a stop to it in a gentlemanly way. Um, of course, like Seth is not as graceful when he goes head first into uh, Emma Stone's eye. Right. But yeah, so I don't know. I I, I was afraid this movie was going to be a lot worse. Like I thought it was going to be a scene like Animal House where she's just like naked there and the movie totally objectifies her. And yeah. then like the devil and angel come up and it's like, we don't have to do devil angel over date rape, do we? Right. 
Uh, no, you're right. There's a whole legacy of high school movies whose sexual politics are way like sometimes downright evil. Um, right. Compared to this, I I guess I just found it like to hear to hear them just be like, well, we have to get girls drunk so we can be the mistake. And yes, they're wrong. Yeah, and, I guess and you're yes, right. And yes, the movie knows they're wrong, but it's just it's just annoying, especially on the same day as watching Booksmart. It's just like I have to hear these kids like work through this stupid shit that like much many people right. hold on but to. But maybe longer. we're just upset by it because, you know, it was the way in which people our age talked about this stuff too. True. Like that's what we thought like went on. I mean, I didn't go to parties like this. Uh we were we were actually turned away. Uh Were you? <laughs> there was one time where we were turned away. It was really humiliating. Cuz you were theater kids? Yeah, because we were the theater dorks. Um, so you're going to give it a good good? I think I'm going to give it a, a soft good good. Okay. I mean, I think it's it's so funny. Yeah. There's just so many good like bits to it. There's a lot of fat on this. Uh, it's politics included in some cases. And the police officer stuff is stupid. You know, it's like you can see an executive watching this movie and going... Maybe I should green light observe and report, you know? <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Or like let's be cops in a couple years. Or let's be cops or like whatever it is. Yep. Uh you know, and just cast the same people. But I think there's there's good there's good humor in here. It's fun. You know, there's those great sort of high school movie things in it, you know, where you have Dave Franco playing soccer and he like For bumps into seconds. Jonah Hill. Uh, yeah, then Jonah Hill just like calls him out on like peeing his pants in like the third grade or something. And he's like, dude, that was eight years ago. He says, people don't forget. And I think that's like a good commentary on like high school. Like that's what feels true about this movie. It's like people don't forget. Well, and that element, and it goes back to at least you get to suck your dad's dick, is like <laughs> when you are that age and insecure, you are just desperately trying not even to win the conversation but you have the line loaded to make sure you don't lose it and like that's right what all you know are. the other person's weakness yeah and that's i mean everyone has that that thing and, it's just a shame that sometimes it goes to yeah questionable sexual politics but, but if you have to play the you peed yourself card like every year for 10 years you will do it right yeah. <laughs> Um, I totally respect the good good. I, like I said, didn't have any really prior relationship with this movie other than clips and hearing secondhand quotes. So for me, the length, the messiness, the Slater and Michaels shenanigans that like I just didn't really think added up to anything beyond like I think their sexual politics is actually worse. Like the way that they talked about his ex wife right. was sort of problematic she and she was a prostitute and then it turned out she she behaved like a prostitute then turns out she was a prostitute like give me a fucking break and the thing is the thing that's so annoying about some of it too is it's like it's all just ad libs like nobody like right it's just it's just improv goofs yeah nobody thought this would be a good idea yeah we know from more recent stuff um including train wreck that like bill Hader's so much better than this yeah seth rogan's not but bill Hader's better (laughs) um so i'll give it a bad good that's where i'm coming from yeah, bad good. Bad Interesting. Good. Yeah. At first, it was also unbelievable. Mike Dexter wanted to date me. I know why I started dating him. I just don't know why I did it for so long. Well, he is the most dope guy in school. Yeah, and school's over. This party tonight? Amanda suddenly being single? It's fate. Fate has opened me a window. 
I got to have sex tonight. It took me all day, but I narrowed it down to a list of 10 very lucky finalists. You know what I'm saying? The year was 1998. <laughs> and the film can't hardly wait. Um, <laughs> we're throwing it back to the true, you know, boom of teen movies here. Um, post yeah. Hughes, of course. Well, post Hughes, yeah. And it's funny because all these movies sort of have that like 10, 12 year window between them. Yeah, that's true. So it's it's an interesting thing to see like late 90s, late 2000s, late 2010s how this movie sort of evolves. Um, and we've sort of been watching it devolve, actually. But In a lot of ways, that's I would not, say. That's not the movie's fault. That's just the way we decided to organize the podcast this week. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, so, Can't Hardly Wait, great title. Um, this movie has, great a, title. has sort of an interesting origin story where uh, the writing directing team of Harry Alfon and Deborah Kaplan were very young, like uh, in their 20s when... They decided to make this, and they wanted to make a movie that they could produce on a small budget uh, in one house, in one night, and get all of their out-of-work friends in the movie. And it turns out that all of their out-of-work friends are the hallmarks, like the hallmark people, the staples of uh, like these, th- this, this kind of movie at this time. Right, or they will be in a second. Yes, exactly. Maybe because of this movie. Possibly. Yeah, there's a lot of familiar faces in this even like the people who were like not that famous ended up doing stuff there were a lot of people i recognized as like oh yeah he's the stoner in this movie who's also the stoner who runs into a room from another movie this is also the first movie where jason siegel uh this his film debut right as the watermelon guy as the watermelon guy right that's his character's name um, there's a couple of those. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart plays. There's a, a quite a few of Melissa those. Joan Hart is the yearbook girl, right? The Michelle Brookhurst plays girl whose party it is. <laughs> is it the night before graduation? Or is it, it, is. Or is it they, the yeah. night before? Uh, no, they've graduated. They've graduated. It's the night before Ethan Embry, who's our way into this movie. The night before. He yeah, meets. this is like a graduation party. Right. Right. Yeah, so they're done, and they're all in, like, getting ready. They can't hardly wait for what's next. Right. Um, so I guess we could start with Ethan Embry, who's our sort of hopeless romantic, who had this moment, uh, freshman year of high school, where he saw but didn't really speak to Jennifer Love Hewitt, who just transferred to the school, and was stunningly beautiful, and is immediately swept up by the captain of the football team and she dated him all these years and they've just broken up like the day before or something and everyone knows it um mike dexter mike dexter love him yeah um i don't know i love mike dexter but we'll keep going um yeah so yeah he he's in the mix um some nerds are in the mix who are trying to humiliate mike dexter because he's bullied them all these years yeah yeah but wait you're missing the the quintessential friendship at the center of this movie which is he's friends with lauren ambrose ethan Embry, and for years and years she's been hearing about how in love right. with jennifer love hewitt amanda beckett he is and there there's like this letter that he's like written and held on to for a million years and it's become like a joke between them but they're kind of like a dawson and pace or a dawson and uh joey that they're like they're not sexual with each other and they like sleep in each other's beds and stuff. It's a little telling though that I lost track of that relationship. Well, it's weird because the movie loses track yes. of them because they spend the rest of the movie, they only are each other's rides. Right. It's so 
odd that it gives up on that. It's like if Michael Sarah and Jonah Hill didn't speak through super bad. Did we talk about how all of these movies begin with somebody giving someone else a ride? That's interesting. Classic high school. That's just classic high school there. But of course, Lauren Ambrose is heartbroken over losing her actual best friend, Seth Green, from like the eighth grade because he like wanted to be popular or something. And now he plays a super problematic (laughs) uh, sort of urban... I, I don't know what's the politically correct way to he's p- pretending he's black. Yeah, like I and the, he's pretending he's black. And his friends are pretending they're black too. And it ends sort of hilariously in a way that's like maybe I just don't know what this is critiquing. You know, what's the character is like it was that an epidemic in 1998 of like white rich maybe it is. May I Well, you know, because it's definitely aware that it's problematic. You know, white teens who behaved that way. I guess that's true. For sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is. I mean, I wasn't in high school in 1998, but I guess I can imagine it. But I guess I'm thinking more like, for me, it was more like if, if you were doing like the big pants and stuff. It was more like goth, and it wasn't so culturally appropriative. Well, let's get into him. Let's get into him more in a second. Um, sure. Yeah. So they all go to this party, and uh, you know. Ethan Embry's trying to deliver that letter to uh, Amanda Beckett, even though she does not know who he is. Um, yeah. And I think the thing about this movie that I think I both appreciate and find especially shallow and easy is this movie also knows that it's one of these high school movies and is ready to take one thing about the stereotype of each character's and flip it. I don't think that that cre- I don't think that's actual depth creation. I think it's no. just understanding of a trope and then being like, "Well, you're not that. You might be something else." Right. Yeah, I Which mean, it's just good you, screenwriting. It gets you somewhere. It takes a tr- like a, a set of movies that already exists and just like plays harder those changes of heart that we saw in uh, Breakfast Club. Yes. So I think one of the good bits, one of the funniest examples is that Mike Dexter, having just broken up with Amanda Beckett because he like wants to, you know, sleep with everyone over the summer and be ready for college, tries to convince all of his football friends to break up with their girlfriends so they can do this too. And then slowly over the course of the movie, the guys are like, well, we, we kind of like our girlfriends. <laughs> and Mike Dexter yeah, we got, ends up alone. One of them's dad's got the Pearl Jam tickets in August. In August. So. I think that's probably the best bit. The other ones I think are just like, well, you didn't, you didn't add anything. You just like, you just flipped it. Um, I think right. that's kind of what happens with like the, the Seth Green characters. Like, yeah, he's willing to ad- admit that, that it was a put on, but, but like, but then what? But it's so like put on that I don't know what it is. Like, no one else seems to be falling for it either. Like, no, nobody thinks it's especially it's so cool. But I guess, like, maybe that is a high school trope, this idea that, you know, it's not... You just, like, buy into that thing. And, like, sometimes there's that that weirdo who, like, goes way too far. And it, like, was never cool. I don't know. But, like, when he starts to, like, you know, put his, adjust and uh, fix his goggles... What, are you off to shoot Mad Max Fury Road after this? He's, like. He's doing like a Coolio Arsenio kind of like yes. era of performative 
I guess you could call it like performing blackness, but like, but yeah, I yeah. think it's super fucking weird that like nobody, <laughs> like he's constantly looking around for approval and no one ever approves of it. And you're like, well, if I'm really to believe that Seth Green is one of the central characters of this movie and not like the ninth character, like he should be, then like, why would he continue to do this if he drops it the minute he gets locked in a bathroom with someone who calls well, him she bullshit? Calls him out on but it. why? But but like, so does everyone else essentially by not responding. I think the other people don't interact with his affects. You know, like there's even that one girl who just talks about that time he had Cheetos in his braces. People don't forget, right? Uh, Reminiscent guy in this movie. Or that, but that woman too. Like also, she calls back to that thing from when they play spin the bottle five years earlier. Right. You know, a memory guy. Yeah. And like the with um, Melissa Joan Hart obsessed with her yearbook, like it all plays into like memories and the preservation thereof. But yeah, but no one calls him out other than Lauren Ambrose saying like, look in the mirror, you're white. Yeah. Which, I mean, maybe she's the moral center of this movie. And that's what we're supposed to take away is that everyone else is just like racist and classist well, and totally strange. But there is also a diversity that exists, like, on the screen. Right. Like, this is a very interesting and, like, mixed cast of characters, both in genders and races. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say that this movie, like, has that sort of super bad, unfortunate, like, total whiteness to it. No, it doesn't. I'm just not sure that it, like... I just don't think that any of the people... Are, like again, it pokes at the stereotypes, but like doesn't turn them into people. It just pokes right. them. It just lets some of the air. It out. just pokes things that are funny about the era. Yeah, and and I want to say, but I do think. Go ahead. I want to say too that like I think that this is a cool premise. I think it is a good idea. I don't think that you can do a bottle movie unless you are going to give me some Linklaterian observation. One of the problems with this movie is that it is people chattering constantly. No one is having a conversation. It's like all like aggressively moving you through like the yeah. plot and arcing of like a few characters. And it's like, well, if you wanted to do that, like why did you have, a, why did you do a house party movie that's so ripe for like, you know, right. rapping about yeah, everybody, everybody outside the main characters who have their very specific goals. Like nobody else came to this party with like a set of expectations for what might happen. Right. You know, like in all the, in super bad, I would say for the most part, and definitely in book smart, like every character you interact with, like has a thing that they think is going to happen that night. Yeah. You're just not aware of it until like that sort of comes to a head with this one. I don't believe that really, anybody like did eric paladino as cousin ron really come there to like hook up with his cousin so weird was that like his his end game there and then he just goes home afterwards it's super strange it's very strange you know and those uh william lichter's uh friends are cool with just sitting on the on the roof for two hours i guess we all they have a great time that was such a good bit the two guys waiting on the because they don't even want to go to the party and they're like afraid of it. And they're trapped up there for six hours. Six hours and they don't complain or like go look for him. You know, they just are comfortable being there. Right. I thought that was one of the funnier storylines was them on the roof. Yeah, um, I think that worked okay. I, 
the other thing too, which I thought was, there are some clever screenwriting moments here because at one point a character we've never seen jumps up on the stage because the band that was supposed to perform broke up before they even could play their first song. The Breck and Meyer Donald Faison band. Yes. And he puts on Paradise City. Um, Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses. And it's like, what is this guy playing? And then from two rooms away, a totally wasted William Lichter goes, wait a minute, I know this song. The guy and I used to have to tutor in math made me listen to it every day. And he then does, I think the movie's best sequence, which is him singing the uh, lip sync to Paradise City. I would agree with that. Yeah, there's a couple well-observed moments. I think that uh, Denise, is that the Lauren Ambrose character? Denise? Yeah, there's a moment where like she's not really with anyone at the party, and she uh, takes off her coat in the middle of the couch and then puts it back on again. And it's like, yes, that's, I, I noticed that. That was great. That's the that's the thing that I felt like the whole movie should have been, which is like much more an right. exercise in human behavior and conversations people were having in 1998. Like, why Certainly. else would you do your movie this way? Is this movie like a little mean though? Like maybe a little bit meaner than it should be. And I'm talking about like moments where, so like the the girlfriend group that she used to be a part of, Amanda Beckett, they're like talking and, you know, they keep talking about this weird, like, he's not Brad Pitt and you're Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. And, and it's such a dated uh, seven reference. <laughs> um, right. But then uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt walks away and they're kind of like, she's not Gwyneth at all. And it's like, why is that such a, like, why do they have to dig at her? And then she, like, goes through the party and sees that these other two characters who, other than that, have just shamed uh, Seth Green for having braces in the scene earlier. They're talking about how, like, she must have paid Mike Dexter for senior year to be his boyfriend, Amanda Beckett. And it's like these moments of, like, people being, like, really cruel and gossipy. Right. That, I mean, maybe that's the equivalent to, you know, the 1998 version of people holding up their cell phones when something bad happens. But it just feels like this movie's a little cruel. I believe that high school people, high school age kids are cruel. But the way that it revolves back onto, like, the main characters only sort of idealizes them more. And that's the part of the movie that makes the least sense. I was, when I was Mm -hmm. talking to, uh, I'll give a shout out to him, uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting music DJ uh, Ray, I was telling him we were doing this movie and he's like, well, the problem with that movie, the the fatal flaw of that movie is that the the love interests don't know each other and so you don't yes. you, so you don't give a shit about them. And it's, it's like, yeah, that's exactly this movie's biggest problem. Well, it's such a weird thing to say that just by her hearing a few negative gossip things about her, and then standing up to her boyfriend who she's dated for four years and like never noticed he was a dickhole until he broke up with her, right. then is somehow swayed by this letter written four years earlier when they were freshmen that Ethan Embry, you know, but what is that saying about like this female character? Like she doesn't want to just be, I mean, she even says like, maybe I should just be single for a while, like in the climactic scene. And I was sort of sitting there going like, that sounds totally reasonable. Right. Well, you've only had your sort of late childhood, early adulthood been in the context of being Mike Dexter's girlfriend, which you admitted earlier. And instead she decides to, quote, write him a letter for every day he's gone and they're still together. 
Right. And she also still has no college ambition. Like that's kind of her, her title card at the beginning is future plans, like question mark, you know? So she gains no agency or interest other than having like a new sort of self-involved boyfriend. It's very weird that, so all three of these movies, including Can't Hardly Wait, hinge in some ways on the ways in which people are wrong about themselves or other people right. or what this night means to them. And it's super strange that the two most important characters in this movie, like it would seem to be teed up for right. Ethan Embry to be like, nah, man, you idealized this crazy thing. Of course it wasn't ever going to be this way. And for a movie that with every other character is flipping tropes, it's like, nope, it is going to be that way. It's super strange because it sort of it perpetuates this narrative that like if men try hard enough, they can have even the most popular girl in school and that deprives her of any like needs or desires. I think that it's also not helped by the fact that Jennifer Love Hewitt is not a good actor and Ethan Embry has charm as we've seen <laughs> as the as the fifth build character in a teen movie. But like it, it was it is strange in retrospect that he is like. That he's the guy. That he's the Joe Go Levitt um, in Ten Things of this movie. He really does not have the sympathy. Uh, no, of a he's Gordon just like Levitt. so wide-eyed. And then every time he, I thought it was kind of funny that every time he drives away from the party, which is like three different times, like classic rock takes over the movie, and then we go back to the party, and it's like Smash Mouth and Blink One Eighty Two. Lot, oh, so good so much smash mouth in this movie i thought this movie had an incredible soundtrack all three of these movies have really uh noticeable soundtracks yes, very noticeable um but they're products of their time let me say this to make my mean point one more time yeah. i think they're kind of mean to the exchange student oh teaching him dirty definitely. things like this movie do you think this movie has a good heart like, does it transcend, like, them just paying their actor friends to last in L.A. another couple months? Or does this movie, like... Because I, I feel like super bad, and I mean, as, as flawed as it is, book smart, as meandering as it is, they all, like, attempt to say something, I think, good about teens. I think that... What what you're talking about is hard to pin down, but but I'm with you. There is a there is a real spirit to a lot of Booksmart, and especially to the end of Superbad with the on the escalator. Um, and I don't right. think that this movie has a lot of heart or a lot of wisdom. What else do we have to say about this? I mean, if you like look away for a second, you miss Selma Blair, Clea Duvall, <laughs> Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> Jerry O'Connell, Trip McNeely. There's so many people in this movie who are in. Um, Jenna Elfman. Yeah. Cruel Intentions, Scream, Ten Things, Undeclared. Like so many. Uh, so many people. Yeah, things of this era. I have to say that this movie's like, other than being like terribly problematic and super dated, it's pretty funny. You think so? And it's pretty easy to watch. And I like it. Okay. I mean, I've I've been familiar with this movie for years. Uh, liked it when I first saw it, and I can see it's a relic. It's an artifact. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it should be released today, uh, and it should be scrutinized in the ways in which we've scrutinized it. Uh, but I think ultimately, it is a, an undersung and underappreciated teen movie of this era. Good, good. Whoa. My good God. Uh, I'm going to give it a bad, bad. Uh, um, 
Get I, out of here. I No, dude, come on. Like, what do you mean, come on? We ripped apart the fact that, like, this is a... You know, we gave it its public shaming, this but is we a, can then forgive it. But I meant it. I'm as mean <laughs> as this movie. Um, yeah. yeah. I don't no. think I convinced myself of that, my own argument there. And as much as I enjoyed, like, 40 different, like, that person, and I may be, I may be overselling it with 40, maybe 31, <laughs> um... I don't think it's particularly funny, nor do I think it's particularly like deep. I think it's pretty flawed. I'm going to give it a bad, bad. You didn't like that part where they're all looking up at the stars and saying it's God's salt. That is among the best lines of the movie. I will grant you. <laughs> you see this salt and this pretzel. Look at the stars. Some people, they say the stars are billions and billions of tons of hot gas. But I think maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's just God's salt, and God's just waiting to eat us. That's some days to confuse shit. This movie really hints at being a lot smarter and deeper, and then never makes good on it. This movie, it doesn't have, for a movie about a party, it doesn't have, like, the good hang that you'd want it to. No. No, and it's... Damn it, maybe I'm coming around. Maybe I think it's a bad good. And I can accept that. I just don't think it's a good good. Okay, I come around. I I say bad good. What if this movie were like structurally edgy comedy that like counted the hours? Like something had to happen like when the clock strikes midnight. I thought that that could have worked. Um, well, that was my big question of this movie is like, can't by the end of it, it's like, can't hardly wait for what? The only person <laughs> who's leaving at the end of this movie is Ethan Embry. He's arguably the person I care about the least. I think this movie would have been so much better had that it been Amanda's movie. And they let her, like, figure out what her shit is. And had Amanda been played by Julia Stiles. Oh, God. My girl. Julia Stiles! No. She's <laughs> the uh, the least interesting of the two sisters from 10 Things I Hate About You. Do you... So, you don't like high school movies, though. I've never... <laughs> Sometimes I think that you assume just because you like a genre, like, slightly more than me... That I yeah, I guess like you it. liked Lady Bird a lot. That's a high school movie. Like my, one of my favorite movies of recent times. Yeah, you talk little, about it constantly. It is a little different just because that movie seems very reflective. It seems very artful. It doesn't quite have that verve where you're like, teens are going to love this. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's made by MTV or something. Right, and Booksmart is trying to grab people who liked Lady Bird and people who liked Superbad in the moment. But I like 10 Things. We both gave that good, good. Yeah. Um, I like Clueless, I think, is a virtuosic script and like doesn't really make sense to me as a movie. I like Mean Girls pretty well. Um, okay, I take it back. Thanks to all our fellow shows on the Playlist Podcast Network as we wrap up here. Um, there have been some cool interviews up recently, some Game of Thrones recapping, if that's your jam. Yeah, and check out BeRealPodcast.com if you want to... Uh, Watch your old episodes, or if you want to hear about any of the other high school movies that we've reviewed, you can uh, you can search the titles and listen to those eps. Um, Noah, what a pleasure walking down uh, Hollywood Memory Lane with you today. Yeah, and to all the grads out there, you know, good luck. There, right. I think your most most fun years are ahead of you. The next four years, and then it's market decline uh, until <laughs> your until your death. Yeah, right. Like, you're going to have one more of those ledge moments when you graduate college, probably. Right, then, yeah. Like, the, the sequel to Can't Hardly Wait is Make It Stop. Right. 
All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Hey, you want to hear a good joke? Nobody speak. Nobody get choked.